podcasting from New York City Times Square. This is ABS in Mind, where we dissect the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. And I'm your host, Diana Asatran, fintech and consumer debt reporter here at Deadwire. Welcome, everyone. The ABS team just got back from one of the largest gathering of structured finance executives, the um, ABS East Conference in Miami. So today we wanted to share what was top of mind uh, for the Miami crowd. I have Al Yoon, associate editor and RMBS reporter. Al, what's on your mind? Well, um, probably be talking a lot about uh, regulation and uh, well, hope for uh, changes in regulation by uh, in the mortgage industry, residential mortgage industry. Uh, a lot of people there were very hopeful that uh, um, they'll see uh, reining in of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and leaving a lot of room for private private more private money to come in. Right. Then we have Larissa Patton who covers esoteric asset classes. Larissa, what's on your mind? I want to talk about the whole business sector. It seems like non-restaurant deals are picking up speed and gaining traction. Fantastic. And we have John Wyland, Managing Editor of DebtWire ABS. John, what stood out to you? I'm going to talk about uh, some of the LIBOR transition tidbits I picked up at the conference and uh, a few other related things. Great. And I will briefly touch on liquidity concerns in the marketplace lending space, as well as some developments in the distributed ledger technology, aka blockchain. All right, Al, why don't you kick us off? Well, um, uh, regarding what they call the GSE patch, which is basically uh, uh, something that was instituted after the financial crisis uh, within uh, the Dodd-Frank uh, um, uh, Act, and that basically allows Fannie, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to make loans uh, with uh, to borrowers with debt-to-income ratios above 43% and have those mortgages be uh, a quote-unquote qualified mortgage. And uh, that qualified mortgage means a lot in the mortgage industry because uh, it basically is a safe harbor for lenders and it protects them from litigation going forward. And after what happened to these lenders after the financial crisis, uh, they're still fighting litigation. Um, you know, they're doing everything in their power to uh, you know, be within that qualified mortgage rule. Uh, so, uh, essentially, um, uh, the CFPB is now considering uh, making changes to the qualified mortgage rule uh, that would, I mean, once this uh, patch is expires, it's due to, due to expire in January of 2021. Uh, so you have uh, private mortgage lenders such as Redwood Trust uh, gearing up and uh, getting ready to take to uh, fill that void uh, once uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are Basically, uh, I mean, prevented may not be the right word, but that's what comes to mind. Uh, making mortgages uh, uh, at uh, you know DTIs above forty-three percent, um, and uh, other kinds of mortgages that are not qualified mortgages now could be at some point too. Uh, for instance, even uh, the popular quote-unquote bank statement mortgages that are in non-QM deals, these are mortgages that uh, are approved uh, using the uh, borrower's bank statements as proof of income as opposed to uh, the more typical W-2 form. And uh, when the CFPB uh, lets the patch uh, drop uh, for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they may be changing other things too. Uh, I don't want to get too 
much into their jargon here, but there's something called Appendix Q, uh, which is this uh, document that, that basically uh, details uh, underwriting uh, guidelines that uh, lenders should be fulfilling. And uh, you know, if they tweak that, then maybe even something is uh, like a bank statement mortgage could could fall within QM. Um, Bank statement mortgages are some of the most popular ones made in these non-QM deals. And uh, so you might imagine how excited lenders are to see uh, that, that those regulations change in their favor. Um, that said, the CFPB hasn't sort of shown its cards, but uh, uh, one could guess based on uh, what uh, the CFPB has said what the FHFA uh, director uh, has has uh, has suggested in terms of wanting to get more private label uh, issuance going and more opportunities to private lenders and you know so taxpayers aren't on the hook for some of these high DTI mortgages that uh, you know basically the tone at the conference is that uh, the private mortgage industry will be getting its way. Big if there is, well, we have an election coming up next year, and uh, um, you know, if anything's going to happen, it's going to have to happen within, within the next year. After that, all bets are off. Right, and I know you said CFPB hasn't really shown their cards, and there was a panel or a presentation at ABS East. What did the investors think about that one? Well, uh, you may be speaking of the one that was uh, closed to media on Sunday. Well, I mean, we weren't there, uh, but uh, we did hear about I mean, what was said. And uh, essentially, it was a policy analyst from the CFPB, not really a senior guy. Uh, but uh, he basically you know, fielded some questions to the audience. And uh, um, from what I heard, is like, you know, it was crickets. Um, you know, nobody really <laughs> wanted to really speak up for some, for some reason. But, uh, you know, I mean, the takeaway from this is that, um, you know, the CFPB could take some time filtering through all the, all the written comments it got a couple weeks ago in terms of uh, what changes it should make to qualified mortgage rule. Uh, they received about 93, 94 comment letters and uh, almost as many different suggestions. So um, it's going to be quite a task to wade through for the CFPB. Hey, Al, um, what volume of mortgages do people think would shake out of the GSEs into the private market if uh, uh, the patch is removed? Uh, it's big. Um, I think uh, the Redwood Trust uh, estimate was that uh, it was something north of 160 or 170 billion dollars in mortgages annually that could be taken wow. up by the private sector. Uh, uh, without uh, any undue, uh, um, you know, adverse um, effects to the borrower, and I'm not sure what they mean by that. But uh, in general, uh, the thought is that uh, once the patch goes away, um, that private private lenders will be charging borrowers more money, and so. These borrower, a lot of borrowers that sort of fell under the patch and had these loans sold through the GSCs were low income, minority, and whatnot. So you imagine, you can imagine uh, how this is uh, politically charged as well. Um, and uh, you know, the private lenders say that the costs will not rise. You'll have competition, etc. 
Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, all right. From a very big and mainstream asset class, let's go to an esoteric asset class. Uh, Larissa, what are you? Can you start us off with? Sure. Uh, yes, whole business is much more esoteric. It does seem to be coming a little more popular with investors. Um, you know, obviously the big story going to the conference was the pet supplies plus deal getting pulled. It was a three hundred and thirty-five million dollar deal. It was marketed this summer. It got pulled essentially because it didn't have any buyers. And uh, it faced a few different issues. Only one third of the deal was backed by franchise fees. It's not a well-known brand to everyone. And brick and mortar retail, it's not a secret. It's not doing too well these days. So all considered, it was an easy pass for investors. We did see the Massage Envy deal price in June, the CSAC deal in August, which was backed by singer-songwriter royalties and more recently Primrose, which is early childhood education, also priced in August. Um, we did see some tightening in all of those deals, but they got done. So um, Serve Pro, right before the conference, they uh, did a property cleaning and restoration company deal. Um, it tightened also, but it's backed by 100% franchise fee store, uh, stores, which investors like. So structured correctly, it seems like there is a market for this stuff. <laughs> that being said, um, the space is dominated by the Dunkin' Donuts, the Domino's, the Taco Bell. Investors really like the restaurant model. Um, they're not going anywhere. They're very popular, as I said. Um, it's interesting to see what's going to go on in that arena. Um, you know, you'll have the brands that focus on the younger generation. They like delivery. They like the focus on the apps, the technology, and then also the simple things like the packaging. Is the food going to be edible when it gets there? Um, you know, but you also have those models that want to focus on the dine-in experience. We'll see where that goes. And an interesting uh, term I'd never heard I learned at the conference is ghost kitchens. Um, we're wondering if they're going to give competitors a run for their money. They are restaurants that do not have storefronts. They do not have dining options. They are solely a kitchen focused on delivery. And that's a growing trend with younger generations might give the restaurant models a run for their money. Interesting. So actually investors expect that ghost kitchens might take a chunk out of like franchise and like typical restaurant businesses. They're keeping an eye on it. They're, you know, the everyone like all asset classes are focused on the young generation and they like to do things a certain way and you know if they can keep costs down and the food good they may give them a run for their money and uh, just around the pet supplies deal so they it got pulled it happens in different sectors was wondering what the investors think is it gonna come back at some point soon or not? the easy answer that I got uh, from a few investors is anything's possible uh, but not likely it even if they were to come back with six months to a year's worth of performance data for investors, they still don't have an answer to the biggest problem, which is Amazon.com. Uh, as I said, brick and mortar isn't doing well, and pet supplies you can buy anywhere. You can buy them online, you can buy them when you go to the grocery store to get your regular groceries. So they don't really have an answer for that. So probably not. We'll was see. there a sense of how big that deal was? $335 million. Wow, it's a significant deal to pull, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good sign that uh, there actually is, there actually are limits to uh, the search for yield, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that we've certainly heard at this conference, too, is, uh, you know, interest rates are low, negative interest, ne negative interest rates in Europe, et cetera, and that, uh, that way people are stretching again uh, here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's good to hear that uh, 
that kind of deal doesn't fly. Yeah, it's good to They're see that. They're not willing to buy everything yes. or anything. It's good to see that. It's also good to see some downgrades. You know, the investors say, you know, you want an indication of where things are going. You don't want what happened to the mortgage crisis, which is everything is great and everything selling until it's not. You do want to see some of the cracks start to show so people can keep their eye on things. I think that's a great point. Mm -hmm. Okay. And John, uh, could we talk some LIBOR then? Sure, sure. So yeah, a lot of the talk at the conference was uh, kind of uh, typical LIBOR subjects, people talking about the fallback language that is going into uh, new deals and imploring people not to create more legacy deals. Uh, some talk of the prospects of a zombie LIBOR, or which, which just means LIBOR living on past the end of 2021. And, you know, your kind of typical mix of, you know, people imploring other people to take it seriously and get moving and notice, noting that, you know, many uh, people haven't even begun to make plans for the library transition yet. Um, but a couple interesting tidbits uh, out of the conference. Um, I, I, this was, I, I found this interesting. Um, a, a, kind of the rub on legacy deals is that a lot of them have no fallback language of any kind for you know, LIBOR, dis, LIBOR's disappearance, but it turns out that uh, some or maybe many have a type of fallback language that tells the, the trustees of the deals that essentially if LIBOR goes away, they have to go out themselves and try to get um, um, quotes from banks, <laughs> apparently, to the LIBOR question, and the LIBOR question that the panel banks are supposed to answer every day is, is at what rate could you borrow funds were you to do so by asking for and then accepting interbank offers in a reasonable market size just prior to 11 a.m.? So that kind of raises the prospect that, you know, these trustees who don't like to, you know, you know, trustees don't really like to go out and have to, you know, take this kind of proactive role, panic calling. Uh, banks every day trying to you know get an answer to this question. Um, you know, a lot of the people I talked to about this said, you know, they, they ha if that's what the documents say they have to do, they will do it. But they also think that they're unlikely to get much response from the banks, um, largely for liability reasons. Uh, you know, given all the problems that the LIBOR panel banks have had, you know, what bank wants to put themselves in a position of you know being the one that's giving the quotes that you know people are using to price deals and then. Um, you know, fearing that they're going to face liability uh, from that. So I, I guess the takeaway there is that, you know, trustees may have to do this. Um, they're not likely to get much response. And so, you know, in those cases, those deals are uh, going to to go to the ultimate fallback language, which is to just keep referencing the last published LIBOR rate. And if that was if that stopped on a certain date, then the deal essentially effectively transitions from a, a floating to a fixed rate uh, transaction. Um, and that kind of segues into the next uh, kind of interesting thing I heard here, I heard at the conference. It's kind of, and this is kind of emerging thinking, it seems, and that is that investors may not care so much if that happens, particularly with some of these older uh, uh, legacy deals, um, particularly on the RMBS side. This is kind of a contrast to what I'd heard in the past, where you know people had said that investors would try hard to avoid such such a transition to to fixed rate, but. I think that the reality is really sinking in that it's it's almost impossible to amend these old deals to to change a benchmark. You really need 100% uh, consent from people. Um, a, a lot of sources at the conference pointed out that you know any, any kind of transition from uh, floating to fixed rate creates winners and losers among the deals investors, and you know once that happens, it becomes 100% impossible to get them to agree to change the rate because what what uh, person who's in the position of you know benefiting is going to want to go you know change a benchmark if it's going to hurt them um 
And then, you know, the, the kind of uh, uh, the, the other side of this is a lot of people said, you know, transitioning for some older deals may not make that much of a difference for the legacy, people's legacy cash flows. Uh, it certainly may not make a big enough difference for investors to try to go out and engage in the time and effort and cost to try to uh, push an amendment through that, you know, may make only an incremental difference to their returns on an old deal that's likely to, you know, unwind or, or could be called soon anyway. Yeah, John, a lot of those deals are paying down, uh, or let's say, say factoring down to very little. Uh, but I wonder, you know, there hasn't been any sort of interesting trading stories in the legacy RMBS market in some time. I mean, um, you know, as you say, uh, you know, the investors may be resigned to it, but uh, I mean, I wonder if that could create, um, you know, large portfolio sale, sales, relatively speaking. I, I suppose it could. I would like to hear some investors um, on this. Uh, particularly in different parts of the capital stack and, you know, uh, get their kind of get their ideas on or thoughts on, you know, what happens when their bond goes fixed. Because, you know, it, it doesn't seem that I, n nobody seems to think that any of these deals are actually going to uh, be amended. And, you know, I asked a lot of different people, have you, has, is anybody out there trying to amend a deal? And, you know, nobody's seen anything on the arm. We've seen some uh, the, uh, student loan ABS investors trying to do this, but nobody's heard anything yet on the RMBS side. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but uh, uh, if it is happening, it's very under the radar. So I, I think it certainly could drive sales or, or uh, um, you know, tactical buys maybe even if you if if an investor identifies uh, uh, something where they think they could benefit from a transition to fixed rate but um kind of remains to be seen and um, it'd be interesting to hear the uh, uh, investor take on that so one, one big unanswered question that I keep at look seeking an answer for is kind of the scope of the LIBOR problem for legacy deals um, you know Moody's last week put out a report uh, putting it at 700 billion in Moody's rates Moody's rated structured finance transactions outstanding at the moment um, but they did not do they did not break that exposure down by asset and you know everybody that I asked nobody has a breakdown and you know the response is always it's very very difficult to come up with such a breakdown so um, we're still left with just kind of a um, there was a report several years ago from S&P that kind of laid it all out by, you know, what the library exposure was at issuance, but didn't really tell you what it is now. So um, um, that's still kind of an elusive question uh, to get, you know, breakdown by asset class. However, Moody's did in their report, you know, put kind of three different levels of risk for different types of deals. And basically they concluded that the, that the types of deals that are the most at risk from this transaction, from this uh, transition are uh, U.S. student loan ABS, CLOs, and trust CDOs. Um, and then their middle tier of exposure, which they say contain library exposure but have limited or immaterial risk, are U.S. RMBS, uh, single asset, single buyer CMBS, CRE CDOs and CLOs, structured finance CDOs, and on the ABS side, auto fleet and credit card ABS. Then, of course, the lowest tier is things with uh, very little LIBOR exposure, and that's pretty much everything else, including uh, conduit CMBS, consumer loan uh, ABS, and uh, uh, most uh, most esoterics. Interesting. Yeah, I think uh, that's what we heard from investors, too. A lot of the um, online marketplace lending deals are fixed rates, so that's not a concern for right. them, but there are a few exactly. student loan deals over there that it looks like investors are watching to see um, how they're going to be handled. Yeah, student loans seems to be the big one. Yeah. 
I think that's why we're seeing uh, the um, you know the, the investors on Deal Vector putting out requests for uh, uh, people to agree to amendments. Right. Okay. Thanks, John. And uh, we're back down to me. Uh, I wanted to know the uh, talk about the liquidity concerns in the marketplace lending um, space, which is the unsecured consumer um, ABS sector. Basically, there has been a lot of uh, transition into um, bespoke transactions in this space versus the traditional ABS markets. Um, you know, a lot of the pass-throughs that we've been covering uh, have been in the market, uh, basically taking out the share that previously was um, in the IBS traditional ABS form. And aside from the um, just a, a complete clean pass-through, there's been some structured pass-throughs that are coming up, and investors have been um, watching the sector. Uh, thinking that, you know, since those pass-throughs don't trade, they're illiquid, and most of the investors just buy them to hold. That affects the secondary market trading because, well, there isn't so much to trade anymore, and, um, you know, the uh, names that are still there in the ABS markets, like the lending clubs and prospers in the of the world, they, you know, will lose their liquidity at some point. Well, that's might be a short-term concern because other investors mentioned that those pass-throughs eventually will start trading, and, you know, the liquidity will be back in the market and investors will still be trusting the uh, larger ABS issuers, um, you know, and be, will be trading them at normal levels. But as of right now, that is um, you know, yet to be seen. And the issuer side, um, it's interesting that a lot of them started rating this uh, pass-through deals. When they first started coming into the market, you know, one of the benefits was uh, the cost cost cutting that was you know, that's inherent for the deals that are not rated. But uh, a lot of those issuers started actually getting those um, transactions rated these days. And, you know, there's whether that is uh, coming from the investor side or the issuer side or uh, just to ensure that they can be traded, that is also kind of yet to be seen. What are the ratings on those uh, deals? Are they getting triple A's or? Um, there hasn't been a triple A um, yet. Uh, they are, um, and don't quote me on that, I think there's been a single A. Um, um, and it's uh, those are senior tranches. They're uh, basically a, a, it would be like a double A equivalent, um, but uh, there's there's still a little bit of a premium because of the structure of it. But yeah, no no triple A's as of yet. Diana, is there any question about why they're getting these rated? Is it a cause for concern? Well, there is some sources actually are noting that, you know, there's been an inflow of investors actually coming back with the unrated transactions that they've purchased and trying to get them rated, you know, post the deal. And, you know, it could be a sign that they're worried that they might not be able to trade them at some point when the recession hits. Because while, you know, the, everybody expects the marketplace lending sector to perform I generally everybody expects marketplace lending to perform for relatively relatively well in the in a recession or in a downturn, but even the headline risk associated with this sector, because it has been untested, is, is still people expect a lot of investors to just uh, leave the leave the sector just from the fear of it, and you know people getting the unrated transactions, trying to get them rated now, that could be a sign that they're worried that there won't be any liquidity in the market at some point soon. Um, I guess it is yet to be seen. Right now, everything is still trading on pretty tight levels because the demand is still high and the deals are pretty short term. So it's a good, good asset, considered to be a good asset class uh, in this environment. 
As a backdrop, uh, I mean, uh, Mohammed El Arian, the uh, chief uh, uh, economist, I believe, at Allianz Global Investors, he was his keynote, uh, he gave the keynote address. And uh, one of the things he was talking about is uh, that uh, everybody in the past 10 years has been sort of over-promised liquidity. <laughs> and uh, this is one thing that could uh, really hurt the markets is a liquidity shock, he said. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, certainly uh, that MPL sector, I mean, they're talking about liquidity there. Well, it could disappear pretty quickly um, there along with everywhere else, according to this person. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave a pretty actually dour <laughs> uh, address, basically. I mean, he wasn't calling for recession in the U.S., but uh, he said uh, Europe is a mess and uh, what happens there comes over here. Um, so uh, it was sort of an interesting you know, backdrop to an otherwise, uh, you know, a lot of people at the conference keeping their chin up and, uh, and hoping that all is well. No, absolutely. And again- actually, um- I'm sorry, I'm actually putting something together on the liquidity comments of uh, him and several other panelists. Um, um, liquidity was a big theme uh, with, with a lot of people there, and not just in our market. Uh, there were a lot of uh, people pointing to the repo crisis that began last week, and uh, you know it, it's no longer in crisis, but you know the Fed continues to intervene in markets um, um, to support the repo market uh, even today. Um, so that's certainly something everybody's keeping an eye on, and there were a lot of uh, uh, a, a, a lot. It seemed that a lot of people's uh, uh, um, answer to liquidity concerns is to essentially buy stuff that you don't mind holding forever right. <laughs> for a long period of time. <laughs> right. Seems to be the solution. And I guess that's the argument here too, because these are again such short-term assets. If you're buying them, you should be able to hold them for longer. Um, but still, the, the lack of liquidity could hurt uh, issuers more than it would hurt investors uh, in this sector. And then the other quick thing that I wanted to mention, I guess, uh, blockchain was um, the talk of town. Um, as this, it always is. As it always is. This time around, it was a little more sober. It's uh, People were treating it more as just you know another technology for the ABS markets. It was a little more demystified uh, this time around. No more dazzle like it usually is. No more cryptos. Um, there was an interesting uh, keynote uh, from Frig- Figures, uh, Mike Cagney, uh, followed by a panel that Jeffries was on. And I think the one thing that was worth mentioning is that Jeffries, who funds, gave a billion dollar uh, credit facility to figure in April. They mentioned that they'll be encouraging a lot more of the uh, companies that they invest in to jump on uh, the blockchain uh, distributed ledger, specifically also provenance, just so that they can have their all of their data in a unified format and in one place, which I guess, you know, if you're a startup company that gets investments from Jeffries, if Jeffries tells you to do something, you just, you know, go ahead and do it. Um, which um, another interesting point, I guess, was uh, there. There's some other platforms, Pro- Provenance and Figure, are not the only ones out there. There was Cadence that actually was mentioned a lot. They have just come out with a whole business, um, are coming up with a whole business transa- transaction that's 30 million, which is probably not says that sizable for the whole business sector, but was pretty sizable for any blockchain company. And Luisa, I actually wanted to see if any of your sources mentioned the deal. I've heard of it. It's um. Fatburger, or the chain, the the company that owns the Fatburger chain, it is a small deal, so I haven't heard a lot about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find it interesting that they're targeting whole business with blockchain. Maybe it's a sign, you know, that it's becoming more popular. Maybe it's just easier to do in that sector. Um, It'll be interesting to see if it really raises any any eyebrows. Yeah. 
And yeah, and aside from that, uh, another platform that caught our attention was uh, Bond One. Um, previously, they've just been a technology platform, but they're looking to adopt the figure model in which they lend out. Uh, they haven't picked an asset class yet, but they will be uh, providing issuing loans to kind of be the proof of concept uh, of their own technology so that later on they can just uh, rent out their technology just like figured it with provenance. So again, a lot more of a sober conversation, a lot more of, uh, you know, backing from more institutional folks, you'd hear like people from Jeffrey's Macquarie and, you know, talk about the tech as something that's real right now, while before it was just promise of the future. All right. And I think uh, with that, we're all done here. Thank you so much, Al, Larissa, and John, and our producer, Anthony, for putting this uh, together. And thank you, all of you, for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.